Hey, crew. Yeah. Listen, literally everybody in the world is trying to do pottery, and I keep offering to give you a lesson, and you keep refusing. What gives? I have a lot of hobbies already. When would I do it between my guitar playing, my TikTok watching, my beekeeping, <laughs> my soap sculptures, my um, bikini car wash? What? I have a lot of stuff going on. But anyway, everyone else should take classes at Brooklyn Clay because they have wonderful teachers who know how to do it. They have every kind of glaze you could ever imagine. I think that's a bit of an overstatement. And they have even plates and dishes called Brooklyn Clay Made. Do you like them? I do. I use them every night, right after I get done with beekeeping. (laughs) Okay, hi Tom. How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing good. Cami, how are you? Good. Welcome back to the Ceramics Podcast. My name is Cami. This is my guest co-host Thomas Bueller. Tom, what's happening? How are you? How's California? California is a little cloudy today. We have a oh, so sorry for you. This morning, yeah. So we're at like 65 degrees. Um, you know, it's rough out here. <laughs> but the California thing is like you. You. I have this idea of. I think everybody has an idea of sunny California. And so that's why you're such a happy person. (laughs) I always like wonder if I moved to California, if I would be like still such a hater or if I'd like be like, no, this is awesome. Yeah. Like everyone else. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So what's your fall been like so far? You started teaching again at USC. Yeah, started in late August. Um, fall's been pretty hectic. Um, what are we, October now? Um, actually, last month I went uh, actually for a school thing to to Italy, specifically to the Biennale for a week. Um, to to you know, we're thinking about taking students in a few years, so we went out to just kind of sc- scope it out. Okay. Um, and then I came home uh, with a lovely case of COVID. Oh. Uh, yeah, you know, it wasn't you know relative to to COVID, it wasn't too bad, but it had me pinned at home for whatever it was, eight, nine days. Yeah. Um, but completely worth it. Yeah. You know, to um, go to see the, see the Biennale and, and just be in Italy for a little bit. Uh, oh, <laughs> okay. Like, okay, really quick, what was your favorite food? Just tell me, just like, let me have it. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the, um, I'm gonna totally butcher it, the, I think the cicchetti, uh, the, uh, my Italian's terrible, the little kind of Italian sandwiches that you could buy for two euros that were usually like little prosciutto, sand, you know, like a, like two inch little prosciutto sandwiches or little ham Cute. and cheese and, and pickle sandwiches that you could, you know, you're walking <laughs> for, for eight hours a day and you could just pick up these little snacks and, and, and I'm, a, I'm a sucker for a good salted meat. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right. I didn't, I don't, I don't, I didn't get those when I was in Italy, but I did go to the gas station and have um, like chicken wings and they were yeah. ridiculously good. Gas, yeah. station, gas station chicken wings are like awesome in Italy. If yeah, you- if, 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 if you know, you can judge a country's culinary um, status by what you can get at the gas station. <laughs> like their version of <laughs> and if they're That's right. And if it's exquisite, then it's only positive. Exactly, exactly. I think we stood there, had espressos and ate chicken wings out of the from behind the glass. It was gross. 
<laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't have that particular experience. <laughs> so you went to the Biennale. How was it? Yeah, it was um, it was fantastic. It was um, uh, you know overall uh, uh, you know really great Biennale. It was just um, you know I mean you know how it is you, you, in New York. You live in an art center. You know we live in an art center here in LA, but when you go to an event, particularly the Venice Biennale, you just see how provincial even these places are like LA and New York are and kind of how there's a lot of navel gazing in even these cities wow. and it's wonderful to yeah just kind of get a, a, a world's eye view um and, and the, the, just the quality of the the shows and the quality of the work across the board was was uh, was you know uh, fantastic and inspiring I've never been to the Biennale so I know that they have pavilions so what does that actually mean so like Describe that. Yeah, so it's uh, so there's kind of, <clears throat> I mean, there's the two kind of primary uh, I don't know what we say uh, sections. So there's the the pavilions, uh, the Giardini, um, which which it's kind of like the Olympics for art, right? So each country has its own building or pavilion, like, huh. but it's not it's like a tent, like it's a physical building. Um, and then what I didn't realize uh, uh, is that so each pavilion is you know, what dedicated to each country is actually designed by an architect from that country, oh. you know, whatever, a hundred years ago, 70 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever, but it's a designed by an architect from that country. And then the pavilion is curated by curators from that country. And then the art, art or artists are, are obviously citizens of that country. And so you're really kind of walking into a slice of kind of the cultural values of that particular country, right? Um, okay. Throughout history, like, so like the German pavilion was uh, 110 years old um, and it had gone through, and actually the artist in that pavilion was making commentary about the architecture of the pavilion and therefore commentary on German culture, which was really interesting. Wow. Um, but so that, that, and then it's, <laughs> I made a, a joke to, to, to my colleagues that I was wandering around with it. it. When you're walking around the grounds, it kind of feels like you're walking around a zoo because it's this beautiful garden and there's trees and flowers and whatever. And then you kind of run into a pavilion, you go inside and you walk through the gardens again and into another pavilion. I see. And it, nothing is rigid, everything just kind of flows. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a lovely experience. Um, and then in the Arsenale in Venice, um, which is, you know, used to be the ar arsenal for the city of Venice or the, state or whatever it was um uh there's a, a huge curated show which uh, oh, i don't have the catalog with me but it's titled the milk of dreams which is done by one curator and but it's artists from all over the world Got it. um so it's super international i, I don't know several hundred artists in that show um and that's kind of in one big structure right and then on top then those are the kind of the two primaries and then on top of that there's kind of little mini shows kind of scattered throughout venice um like anish kapoor show right oh, um, oh yeah contemporary polish weavers you know show you know um so we literally we were walking down this alley um just to get out of the sun and then we stumbled into you know a show by the mongolian artists right um so it's, it's you're really immersed in world worldwide art from all over the world you know within this beautiful city that has its own kind of you know architecture and culture etc did you did you feel like ceramics is still a vibrant possibility in the art world or is it coming to uh, a close uh based on this i was shocked by how much ceramics there was oh wow is, oh, i think it's closed now, but yeah um and <clears throat> 
not only that, um, uh, the depth and breadth of, of ceramics uh, as a material, right? So there was some, um, let's just say kind of true ceramic artists, right? Like um, uh, Magdalena Odundo, right? The Kenyan art, British-based Kenyan artist with the vessels and uh, I always get her name, Cranbrook alum, you know, like, so, so real kind of vessels, like, but really exquisite and, um, but ceramic vessels and then, and then there was uh, artists uh, like uh, Ali Shari that you know, kind of working with with more conceptually as a material. Um, but it was a really great range and kind of scattered. Uh, the American Pavilion was Simone Lay, right? right. Um, whose so was, work is know, beautiful. Whose work is exquisite and you know, large scale ceramics, also large scale bronzes. Uh, but you know, I don't know how she defines herself, but clearly ceramic art, right? Or art, you know, where, where ceramics is fundamental. Um, and then, yeah, during, and even some of the smaller shows, um, but certainly, yeah, pavilions, the, the main curatorial, just, just tons of ceramics. And it wasn't, um, how would I say it? It was very present, right? Um, it was a show, if that makes sense. Okay, so was there, did you see anything that you loved that you were like knocked out by? Yes. Um, so like I said, this, the Lebanese artist, Ali Shari, I think I could well be pronouncing that wrong, so okay. forgive me. Um, I, th I think he's uh, based in Paris. Just figurative sculptures of this kind of, um, you have to see it, but I'll, you know, they're basically these, you know, large scale figures like unfired adobe and then with these kind of fire ceramic masks placed on them and just really evocative and powerful. I think the pieces were called Titans. Um, but then there was another, um, uh, there were the Latvian pavilion. Uh, there are, uh, um, a, a, pair, a team uh, and they go by Skuja Braden. And I was not familiar with their work at all. And, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about Latvian art. Uh, and then so when I went the scene and then wandered in um, to this pavilion and there was between a thousand and 2000 ceramic objects. Wow. And um, like overwhelming in the best way, like, on, on tabletops, on the floor, hanging on the wall, hanging from the ceiling. And while I wouldn't call it an installation, um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too much into a semantic art speak thing. Like okay. it, it was, it was because it felt to me like it was about each object was so individually contained as a, an exquisite object. Right. Um, however, they just kind of shotgun, it was everywhere. And so we were immersed in these objects. And when I say objects, it was things like platters, you know, cups, but then, uh, you know, sculptures of, of like abstract sculptures or sculptures of like a dildo Stonehenge um, <laughs> or a little, little cars, you know, with, with rubber wheels that you could actually look like you could move them. Um, sculptures of like hoses, like just kind of, it was very surreal and random, but they were incredibly, it was the best of ceramics. They were, they were incredibly exquisitely crafted, like just beautifully made objects hyper um, exquisitely um, kind of China paintings very I wouldn't call it realistic but but like very skilled painting but it was it was what I was really struck by like you know how what happens in ceramics sometimes skill gets fetishized yeah um, and therefore content gets lost um, because oh like you've made this incredible thing you're like so talented but what's the thing about or here it's like these these two women were clearly had skill they knew what they were doing they knew their shit but it was all about the work and the, um, um, 
and and they use their skill to tell the story these pretty crazy stories like very surreal stories within each object had its own story but then within the context of these thousand things um that was really like um yeah that was that that those artists that that team scooja braden i found really inspiring in, in a way to kind of um uh how should i say ceramics um kind of using ceramics in a way that's very much not trendy right now um huh. kind of kind of nerdy aspects of ceramics you know platters you know whatever pottery stuff right but like it was it was so incredible in the context of, of this mass of objects it was it was amazing it was kind of mind-blowing right so it was like an exploration in craft as well as like I'd be curious to, I, I'd be curious to, to hear them speak. I really, like, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell if they were like a, a romantic couple uh -huh. um, or just an art team. They, you know, they, in the, in the, uh, you know, the, the text, um, the, it just talks about them as an art team. So I just took that for what it was, but some of the imageries, it seemed like they might be a couple. Um, I would say, yeah, it's just this kind of surrealist hyper narrative. Through, yeah, through, yeah, through, I wouldn't say it's about craft. I think this is like, hey, man, this is how we do stuff. And if you're going to do it, do it. Do you know what I mean? I didn't feel like it was some craft manifesto, which was also great. Okay. Um, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I do. I really do. I really, really do. Although I'm really mm -hmm. obsessed with, like, I'm 100% obsessed with craftsmanship. You know, I'm making all these pieces and mm -hmm. I've been telling, you know, I've been talking about them forever. And mm -hmm. it's such a private, you know, I've made these pieces in my studio um, and I've like, and I know where, I know what I'm doing and I'm like, I know how they look. And so, and now I'm like getting to the point where my own craftsmanship is sort of block giving me like, like, mm -hmm. you know, like writer's block, artist block, mm -hmm. the existential sure. malaise. So, mm -hmm. it, but it, that's, this, that's so private. Like once I bring people over to see them, they're going to see like the flaws. And that's mm -hmm. part of like, this thing I'm going through about like, like how do you, you know, my skill level is my skill level. There's nothing I can do. That it is what it is. Like as the more I do it, the better I get, but that doesn't help me. I mean, like I won't be that good for 10 more years. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's like yeah. that's such a private thing to show people like that experience, like that experience is so crazy, right? Cause you're like, oh my God, I see this tiny little thing and then you're like is it perfect <laughs> like i don't like when i look at stuff that's how i look at it it's um yeah uh, i think like you just said it's it's super as an artist it's super personal right you have to find your or we all have to find our lines um as to what you're comfortable putting out in the world and you know one thing i remind my students of and you know ultimately it's they have to figure this out is the, the viewer doesn't know what you see as as wrong right i keep doing this for your yeah right and so when you put it out in the world the viewer has to assume that everything is intentional right yeah right uh, that everything of that piece is 100 percent intentional so if there's a whatever a fingerprint or a crack um, that's driving you in terms of ceramics as the artist crazy, the viewer A probably won't even notice and B just assume it's part of the sculpture or the piece. Yeah, um, right. And so it's this balance between like uh, um, 
self-criticality, right? And and like real, like, you know, I'm putting my best foot out there versus like, I just got to get it out of my system and, and, and let the world see it and see how the world responds. Um, and and how viewers and yeah how viewers respond um, but that's not there's no absolute to that that's, a, that's a, up to each of us as artists i think yeah it's so it's like weird from it's weird for as a crafts like an artist and crafts person yeah which i think i consider myself both you know mm -hmm. i don't yeah because i'm definitely worried about craftsmanship so it's private also because maybe because no one's really seen what i'm working on really just a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we all we all know our own own flaws intimately, right? But there's also the um, you know the, the flip side to that to maybe add to kind of neurosis, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know the um, what is it? the John Cage quote or the Sister Corita Kent quote? Um, you can you can fool the fans, but you can't fool the players. Oh. Right, so you can, right, so you can yeah. put this out there, and everybody will think you're the greatest, and the people who actually do the thing are like, yeah, well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Y and Z. Oh yeah. Who's your yeah. audience? Yeah. And, and Instagram is, you know, for the fans. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like total Photoshop, all those things before. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Is that what do you think about this intro? I don't know. I think it sounds okay. I do think you? it sounds okay too. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of fun. It actually that it can go get right into our guest today. Because okay. uh, when we interviewed her, she was working on a show for in uh, Lyon in France. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, thank you so much for introducing us. Yeah, I think she, I was just going to say, I think, yeah, she's, she, you know, lovely human, you know, really articulate and interesting. And I think her, her work right now is there's just a lot of depth and a, a, to it. And I think it's really compelling. And it was, yeah, it was fun to talk to her in this context where we could just get really in depth. Um, into the yeah into the making oh right it got real it got into mm -hmm. some real deep making shit i love it okay so um here she is nikki green okay hi nikki hi tom hey cammy hey nikki <laughs> hi thanks for having me so tell me right off the jump, how do you know each other? Hmm. Should I should I should I intro our our intro? <laughs> um, so um, uh, we met well, last spring, um, and so uh, Nikki was a visiting artist for for my upper division students at USC. Um, and at the beginning of the semester, I you know, who do you guys want to see? Um, and a couple students desperately wanted to wanted to meet Nikki. Uh, green and luckily Nikki had just come down to to work at Long Beach if I'm not mistaken or was in the uh, it was in the area and agreed to come talk to us and that was I don't know probably March or April which was wonderful and then we happened to be doing the the residency at Long Beach this summer together and so we've gotten to hang out and, and be pals is that about right yeah totally <laughs> I think that we talked about my coming to visit your class when I was on like a kind of whirlwind apartment hunt um, oh, that's right. in LA because I had just uh, just moved to LA in January, like right after finishing my teaching semester at Berkeley. Um, so yeah, it was kind of this like great, um, great timing 
that I was like, I just like had just moved to town. So yeah. it worked out really well. So what have you been working on at the residency at Long Beach? Um, well, I, so I've been making figures, which is a real kind of um, fork for my practice, like a sort of um, tangent, I guess, is how it feels. Because um, prior to this residency, I had been making, um, I would say like definitely, I mean, I had been making sort of looser, uh sculptural pieces that I would sort of refer to as figures but they weren't human figures by any means um and I had been doing a lot of myolica and sort of like surface painting and painting bodies but um the invite for this show uh felt like this great opportunity to just explore something really different and so I've been making these life-size figures um, and it's been really challenging, but <laughs> exciting. You know, it's like, it's fun to, I mean, is it fun? It's, uh, <laughs> I've seen you down there. Yeah. It's like, it's exciting to yeah. do something that I feel like I'm not very good at. Um, and, uh, and yeah, to really just grapple with the experience of a material that I feel comfortable with, but using it in a way that feels mm. really unfamiliar. That's a really great way to, to frame that. Uh, just, you know, to repeat what you said, a material you're comfortable with, but an image or a subject that maybe you're not. Um, yeah. I, don't know, I feel like there, there's a metaphor with playing different kinds of music or something. You don't know how to play the guitar, but you know, you do jazz instead of rock or whatever. Um, and it right. seems like you're comfortable, but you can stretch yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I just feel like, I don't know, for me and my temperament, it's mm -hmm. like if I, I, I sort of hit a threshold with work where it's hard for me to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Like, I think I'm like not a potter for, you know, <laughs> this reason, right? Like, like I just, for real, you know, I feel like I just can't make yeah. like product um, yeah. because I just, um, my temperament is such that I like need this kind of um, shifting and changing and kind of challenging my understanding of the material and my practice and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's like I made figures, but I made like life-size figures and I made them in these kind of gestures that are like you know sitting on furniture and sort of like crossed legs and twisting and these like the most annoying and complicated <laughs> gestures I could think of and it was really tough like I think in that talk in Tom's class I was like in the midst of a you know borderline like meltdown about it and I just like was very real with <laughs> maybe a little too real with your class like just to, you know saying like this is what I'm working on and I really don't know how I feel about this right now but it's just kind of what's happening I, I love I, that so much yeah I gotta say I, I love that too because I think um you know students sometimes think art is magic right um or that it's easy for for all of us and then to kind of be really honest with them and kind of say hey, it, it's hard but then i know uh, or you know uh, hopefully at some point those same students will see the work that you came to you know which is you know 
for our listeners, since it's a podcast, it's beautiful. I mean, the work is amazing. And then the gestures that you came to, there's a lot of subtlety to them. Um, and then kind of pushing the scale and the negative spaces within them and just, just kind of the gestures of them is really lovely and poignant. Um, and to kind of work through that and get to this kind of work is really, you know, I, I guess I got to see it firsthand from, <laughs> from, from when you talked about the challenge to, to, to the crate, you know. Um, I wish I could go to France and see it in person. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki, what were you looking at that made you want to flip to figures? So I think I've always been really interested in figures. It, I would say the figure has definitely been present, just um, I think I've had a bit of a complex about what it means to be like a figurative sculpt sculptor or somebody who makes figures um, in this sort of maybe commitment sense that I felt like um, I wasn't sure that maybe I was ready to commit to it. But, you know, when I was in grad school, I was obsessed with um, the Mike Kelly, the Uncanny catalog. Love that. Um, yeah. And just really, you know, I think I've had a really intuitive and ongoing kind of obsession and fear of uncanny objects. So even like mannequins and, um, you know, I grew up in uh, the Northeast. So, you know, went on school trips to like Plymouth, Massachusetts to go see like the Plymouth Wax Museum and just remember being like absolutely terrified of the tableau there. So <laughs> I think like, yeah. It's like, like and, a sculptor's dream nightmare. It's like- <laughs> Exactly. And, and specifically dream nightmare. Like, I think that that's what's really fascinating to me about figurative work is that it kind of evokes that like, oh, this is amazing and I'm drawn towards it and I'm also kind of horrified by it and, uh, you know, can't really like, like physically move through this space without feeling sort of uh, scared of these objects. So um, yeah, I like, but, you know, in grad school, like I didn't make any real kind of like human figurative work. I was making these large kind of fungus sculptures that were gestural and so I would refer to them as figures, but um, I have a close friend and collaborator named Ricky Dwyer who uh, kind of sat me down and was like, I think you're like actively avoiding making figures and it kind of <laughs> sounds like you might need to just try making them and just see what happens. And I think it's always important to have folks who will like do like real talk with you about that. And uh, yeah, so I just kind of jumped in with both feet for this uh, show and it's exciting and again, really challenging, but I, I feel, uh, I think I can feel excited about it now because the work is finished and um, I'm sort of beyond the uh, stress of the kind of making process. It's over. Can I just ask you, did you ever see that woman who she tried to like restore the painting, the Jesus painting or whatever? And so she painted over it and it was like a horror show. That sort of reminds me, like sort of this conversation sort of reminds me of that, like that horror 
Tom, do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? The lady I, who was like the Italian lady. Yeah, some Botticelli or some yeah, artist. Some, or yeah, she just like really fucked it up. <laughs> anyway, I love. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like the the. I mean that piece in particular, where it's like the intention of kind of a flawless repair mm-hmm. meeting the uh you know the disconnect of like a skill set or something <laughs> yeah. and um the horror that ensues yeah. in like the result yeah, yeah. I mean it's <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> totally have you been to the Hollywood Wax Museum yet since you're in the neighborhood I have not yeah. I I mean I I have to say like I was driving the other day and passed um like Madame Tussauds and yeah. was like kind of want to go yeah <laughs> kind of don't want to go um, Tom have you been uh, oh yeah oh yeah it's a trip uh it's I mean I, I don't know how it compares to the Plymouth Rock Wax Museums <laughs> you know it's a whole nother set of history but yeah it's you know it's, it's you know it's, what, did, what did you say earlier sculptor's nightmare it's like watching a car accident but you know talk about uncanny and fascinating and beautiful and weird and is this art or is it not you know and then it's in Hollywood like celebrity and you know what are we doing to these people and um yeah I think it's a destination for especially for you Nikki <laughs> you know yeah you know. I yeah I feel like I I should check that out I um I mean there's something about like I just remember at the like the Plymouth Wax Museum that there was also so much about the kind of like immersive quality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like the tableaus that are made yeah. for these wax figures that are about sort of um, the the narrating of history um, that I think are really exciting. And so like, you know, for me, like, do you know, like Ed and Nancy Keenholz's mm-hmm. work? Um, not oh, ceramics yeah. folks by yeah. any means, but um really kind of like mixed media they were doing a lot of like uh wrapping plaster bandage on models I guess for them Mm -hmm. in the studio and sort of cutting the plaster bandage off and then sort of assembling bodies through Mm -hmm. these body parts but really making these like immersive spaces um where like a viewer can walk into the tableau and you're kind of just like a witness to whatever scenario is sort of happening inside and and the way they they set up the tableaus it's you know you you as the viewer you know become complicit in whatever's happening um just because of the scale relationship and they're they're fit you know they're figurative um um uh, and so you're relating to them with your own with your own body as well um and they're yeah they're very surreal and uh, uncanny right yeah yeah did, did you find that that this new the, working with the figures really slowed you down from your old because i saw some of your older work and it feels way more immediate than the planning of making really complicated gestures yeah, for sure. I feel like, um, you know, I've been working on these three figures and, you know, a number of other pieces, um, but been working on these three figures since January. So it's been like six, <laughs> seven months Holy, of, yeah. of, yeah. And and granted, like the works are large. So there's been like, you know, a handful of those months are just like drying the pieces and then yeah. Uh, 
you know, I, as much as I would love to sort of like one and done the glaze process, I'm just, I think a little too finicky with my desire for kind of surface that I just, you know, multiple glaze firings on these like huge pieces and just kind of like give it what it needs. But it ended, it ended up just taking way longer than I expected. And yeah, I mean, prior to these pieces, I had been making, you know, various size works, but um, a lot of myolica, which is like so immediate and straightforward, um, you know, I could usually get away with glazing and firing like once and then sort of moving on. So, um, you know, and like the scale was at a more kind of manageable size. So it just was a more straightforward practice. But I mean, that's, you know, again, it's like when the scale becomes that large, it's just like such a different practice altogether. I'm wondering um, like if it, it gave you time to really, to really think about what you got yourself into. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like when you, when you're like already like, I'm not sure. And then your pieces are taking so long. You can like, sort of like idle, like idle hands is a devil's playground sort of idea. Like you're like, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, uh, the amount of like agonizing <laughs> over each sort of decision um, became a lot. Like, I think that I'm used to a pretty busy and um, sort of like an active studio practice, but one where I'm just kind of like moving through objects kind of um, relatively quickly and really not like there's not a lot of time to sort of worry about details like that where I'm just like I just have to finish it and it doesn't have to be the best thing ever it just has to be uh, good enough <laughs> to leave the <laughs> studio um, yeah and so having like six months to like make all these figures and to just like kind of live with them for a while was difficult. I mean, I really, I think kind of, I did a lot of like agonizing and kind of hand wringing over uh, like, what about this gesture? Like this, uh, this proportion feels off, you know, what's going on with this? And I think part of the thing that Tom's class was really like listening to when I gave that talk was like grappling with the fact that a figure, a human figure um, has these kind of expectations placed on it around like proportion and sort of scale and, and an understanding of like the integrity of a body. Mm -hmm. And I think that those pre-existing sort of values made it really hard for me to just like make a thing and feel excited about making a thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I kept having uh folks come into the studio and be like like chill like loosen up mm -hmm. like stop like worrying about it and just make the thing which is something that I like tell my students all the right. time but <laughs> but I think because it was something that I was so uncomfortable with I was like oh it's not right it's like it's out yeah. of proportion it's like of course it's out of proportion like what like why are you yeah. worrying so much about that so 
I mean, it's interesting. Um, I mean, we didn't really talk much when, as you were doing it when, when we were down there together, but just seeing them, it's, um, they feel very loose. They, they feel comfortable in their skin, you know, as, so to speak, as, as, as sculptors. And, and it's, it's interesting to hear your internal conversation how it felt <laughs> tight to you. Mm, that's but, generous. But it's also, it's also kind of good that you did it so yeah. i mean it means like every decision you made is intentional right like yeah. so when the viewer sees your sees these figures like they're gonna hopefully walk away with everything is considered which yeah. is so important i think especially when you're making figures and you know representing a, a whatever body yeah 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 um, totally I have a question, you know, kind of a question or comment. Um, you know, you, 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 just in this, you know, 15 minutes, you, you referenced your Myalica and your interest in Myalica and, you know, a, a lot of your work, you're, you know, you, you like to paint and you have this painterly quality. Um, even, even on your large scale objects kind of become canvases. Um, at least, you know, maybe you did it, but at least from what I saw, you, you kind of went with glazes or, or kind of broad stroke. Um, surface treatments with the figures, what, what, how did that feel to you? Or, or, or do you think you might go back in at some point and actually do some painterly stuff on, on these figures? Well, I think that um, I did like a little bit of my Olica work and I guess it's sort of, it's hard because we're not like looking at these objects, but yeah. the, um, the figures are sort of sitting or standing on pieces of what I'm sort of referring to as furniture, but they're really just kind of like, um, almost like pedestals or something. They're like these large kind of tiled blocks um, and that are sort of broken up into tile forms or tile shapes, I guess. And so I did like, I would say kind of the bare minimum myolica surface on the tiles. I think in part because the work is about um, uh, the ritual bath, which is like a, like a subject or kind of a space mm -hmm. that I'm really um, focused on, obsessed with, uh, you know, a, a ritual practice that I've been really interested in for many years and have been making work about for a long time. And so it felt sort of natural for the figures to be engaged um, almost architecturally with um, like a tiled environment. Um, I chose not to do any sort of surface painting or I guess sort of narrative surface painting on the tile because it, because the figures I felt like were sort of um, narrating that, um, kind of engagement um, enough that that I didn't want to sort of detract from from the dimensional figures. But um, yeah, I think, but I think that it also felt important to me to incorporate the Myolica surface into the work because it's sort of a language that I feel excited mm -hmm. by and sort of committed to. I don't know if that answers yeah. your question well nikki i'm so glad you brought it up uh the ritual bath i saw you talk about it on instagram and i was like oh yeah like that's that's what it is that's how i feel right now so yeah explain what it is because it's friday right so you know it's <laughs> like tick like yeah it's time yeah 
great. I love that. Um, yeah, so the, well, the ritual bath um, is used in so many um, religious practices um, and the sort of religious practice that I'm pulling from a religious kind of background, my own religious subjectivity is Judaism and um, the ritual bathing practice is called mikvah and it's primarily used um, kind of in two ways. I would say like in a really kind of traditional sense, um, it's used by uh, cisgender women around their menstrual cycle. So it's about sort of like, quote unquote, like bodily purity and the menstrual cycle. Um, and, uh, and then it's also used by men before like the high holy days. Um, but it's like a sort of dunking in what's referred to as like living water as a kind of purifying of the body. Um, and then it's also used in more progressive communities um, as the kind of final ritual around conversion to Judaism. And I think in that sense, it often gets um, linked to like baptism. Um, it's this kind of like um, immersing in water and then uh, exiting the sort of surface of the water, sort of reborn a Jew. Um, uh, yeah, and I just, you know, many years ago, started to explore Jewish ritual generally and um, had this kind of revelation that mikvah is a tiled environment, or I guess like an architectural mikvah, because there's all of this Jewish law around like what is and is not a mikvah, which I sort of have some interest in and also don't care so much about. Um, but, uh, you know, like the ocean is a mikvah or like a river is a mikvah. It has to have like an inlet and an outlet um, to be like considered like living water. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Okay, so go like, on. I'm so, like fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so an architectural space, um, uh, in our, like a mikvah that is built into a space needs to be built into the architecture of the environment. So it's sort of integrated. It's not like an object, which is complicated in relationship to my practice because I'm really interested in objecthood. And um, in that sense, I'm sort of like, well, I actually don't care if it's an object or, or not, you know, or if it's like a real mikvah or not, because this is like an art practice, I'm not like an architect or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, you know, in seeing in like an indoor mikvah space and seeing the tile, I was like, oh, ceramics, like mikvah in relationship to a ceramic practice. And that sort of snowballed from there around exploring the ritual and the the interior space, I guess, through through an art practice. And then you mentioned that you like wash off the week, uh, like so. It's like a way of starting over, or is it like that's the past and we're moving like forward? Or yeah, I mean, I so I have like a what like a personal ritual where I um for Shabbat for like the um 
the Sabbath on like Saturdays, I have like a ritual where I sort of scrub myself on Friday night um, to, I guess, like sort of like end the week and sort of slough the week off of my body and um, enter into Shabbat feeling sort of like fresh and raw and ultimately like I would say most people wouldn't consider that like a mikvah ritual um but to me it's like it's about sort of immersion it's about sort of like water and cleaning and and so for me it's like significant enough and I don't really need it to be like recognized by Jewish practice or like sort of larger Jewish communities as like a legitimate like uh practice I mean ultimately it's this thing I talk about this a lot in terms of like my queerness and my transness that like those communities that would look at my scrubbing ritual and say like that's not a real mikvah would also look at my body and say like you know you like you don't actually get to really participate in sort of normative Jewish society anyway so it's sort of like I'm almost like absolved from the ins and outs of sort of traditional Jewish uh practice or sort of life and that gives me a lot of openness to just kind of take what feels important and to leave what feels kind of oppressive and ultimately as like an artist I feel like that's kind of what I do with everything where I'm like "Ooh, this is fascinating <laughs> and sort of like you know drag it into the studio and like play with it and then when it sort of feels not useful anymore I like move on to the next thing so that's beautiful yeah, yeah. It, it it seems like it's it's about it sounds like from what you're saying it's a very about just kind of um you actually bring a real consciousness to these rituals rather than simply you know performing the ritual because that's what you do it's like why am i why are you why am i doing this ritual and what's important about it and really kind of thinking it through and, and kind of the the value that it brings to to you personally yeah and ultimately i feel like that's kind of what ritual is for is it's about sort of um presentness and intentionality and um engagement and i think that yeah. like you know i think maybe when one is immersed in a world um that sort of engages ritual practice really kind of consistently it's almost easier to be like well we do it because we do it you know right. like um I do this ritual because my parents do this ritual and because my siblings do this ritual and my neighbors do this ritual um but there's something about the breaking of that pattern that allows kind of a maybe not a clarity about it but a kind of um awareness or sort of intentionality like um you know if every whatever blessing prayer is talking about binary gender and I don't have a binary gender then all of a sudden I'm sort of like removed from it and get to sort of say like does this actually serve me and if it doesn't serve me then I can either 
walk away from it or I can engage it and sort of manipulate it, um, I, I get to have the, the, the luxury of a kind of separation or something from the kind of expectations. But you get to participate. The bigger idea is like, well, since we're making up rules and rituals, like I'm going to participate in your thing, but just like the way I'm going to do it. And there's like, no one can tell you no. Like, yeah. Right. Right. Well, it's like, you know, um, if people are like, oh, that scrubbing ritual is like dumb or something, it's like, okay, like, <laughs> cool. It, like, it doesn't yeah, affect like, you anyway. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. Um, you know, I can, I can totally see that people would feel uh, protective, maybe like possessive over like language and history and ritual. Um, you know, like if I say that this scrubbing ritual, this Shabbat scrubbing ritual is in relationship to mikvah, I could imagine people would be like, no, it's not. And like, how dare you, you know, whatever, like yeah. um, sort of use that language or something. But um, I don't know. I, I guess I try to be... Um, learned as learned as I can be as learned as I can sort of stand around this stuff so I feel like I at least slightly know what I'm talking about but also like I don't think one should need to be um yeah like completely and utterly um understanding of a thing to engage it and kind of manipulate it but yeah that's just me I, th I think there may <laughs> there there may be some sort of uh, metaphor there with some maybe uh, old school hardcore ceramicists that we might encounter about the <laughs> way you do ceramics right. <laughs> That's true too. <laughs> um, I have a question, um, maybe a comment. Um, I think, and you know, both of you correct me if I'm wrong. I, I feel like um, a lot of artists steer away uh, from religion. Um, and even kind of active talk of spirituality, um, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but clearly it's something, Nikki, that you lean into and it's, you know, not only fundamental to, to, to you as a person, but also to your artwork. And, you know, you're clearly very comfortable <laughs> talking about it. And that's what it's about, uh, or much of what it's about and, and, and defines it. Um, were you ever uncomfortable kind of being, uh, kind of talking about religion and, and spirituality so overtly? Yeah, I think, I think as a younger person, I really rejected religiosity and sort of, um, maybe, um, parroted back that, like, I'm spiritual, but not religious, mm -hmm. um, phrase, which to me just communicates like organized religion is potentially oppressive and um, potentially hurt me in some capacity. And so I'm interested in uh, ritual, um, I'm interested in a relationship to something else bigger than I am, but um, I have complex or maybe not complex, like painful, angry, 
frustrated feelings about organized religion. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I've just found, um, I've just found a lot of power, a lot of like understanding of myself and uh, my histories through exploring the trauma that I experienced in, in organized religion. Like I think as like mm -hmm. a, a younger person, I was um, reading an interview with Kiki Smith who was talking about the, um, the way in which she sort of explored Christianity as a way to just kind of heal from it. And it really clicked something for me where I was like, cool. oh, like as artists, it makes sense that we would sort of move towards the things that feel painful. You know, it's like that kind of sore tooth thing where you just like keep kind of prodding at it that like need to understand what's going on or at least explore what's going on. Um, and I guess for me, it's just like as an object maker, ritual objects felt like a really um, straightforward way, maybe not straightforward, but a sort of accessible way to kind of move into that research. Um, yeah, but I mean, I still sometimes feel weird talking about religious stuff, like the way that, you know, the world exists as sort of a secular space. So you know, it's like when I start talking about religiosity and I see sort of people's eyes like start <laughs> to glaze over, like I, I'm really aware of the fact that it's um, not everybody's cup of tea, but I also can't deny the fact that I was brought up in a, I would say maybe somewhat religious household, slightly religious household and find a lot of, um, inspiration and uh, pleasure sometimes and structure and um, history, a lot of like sort of content from engaging my Jewishness and also just like what it means to be engaged in a spiritual or religious practice. There's like a lot of there's a lot of meat there to kind of yeah. dig into. I mean, I think um, the first time I saw one of your pieces in real life was one of the, the, the I guess, bath, bathtubs, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I didn't, I, you know, at the time I didn't know too much about you, but I, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not Jewish, right? but I came at it from a uh, kind of more, um, I guess, conceptual perspective. Like, wow, what a, what a, what a, brilliant way to use the material, right? Ceramics, right? To, to make an object, this, this kind of quote unquote art object, that's actually a, a piece of craft, but that's a, as a ritual object that's about religion and it's made out of the material it's supposed to be, but it's talking about all these other things as well. Um, and then, you know, and then kind of really, oh, it's, it's actually this religious object and we're talking about culture and art and spirituality and religion and history. Um, and then of course, you know, identity, your, your identity as well. Um, and I think it's just, a, you know, it's just a really smart and um, kind of in, in cerebrally smart and emotionally smart way to use the material to make a compelling object. Mm. 
Thanks, Tom. I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Cool. Yeah, you never <laughs> say you never say that kind of stuff about my work. <laughs> I, I got to see it in real life. <laughs> oh, maybe. So now that you're in LA, there's all kinds of spirituality. How does it feel? Because I've been to LA. I think I lived there for a couple months, but yeah, it's like its own monster of things. Like laser treatments are spiritual. You know, it's like everything totally and and i think a lot about i think a lot about here in la as like um the sort of crafting of the body is so much more uh tangible and like visible here in a way that i just find so fascinating um yeah i i'm i'm excited about that um I, so I moved from the Bay Area. I lived in the Bay Area for like 15 years before I moved. And I have to say, I feel a little homesick for the Bay. I've only oh. been in LA for like seven months now. And yeah, but I mean, I like it here. I like being in this kind of bustling city. I, I actually lived in New York before I moved to the Bay. Um, yeah, I saw that I grew you lived in Parsons. Yeah, so I grew up in Boston and or outside of Boston and then um, was at the new school. I was enrolled in, at Eugene Lang in like a psych program and then taking like sculpture classes at Parsons um, while I was there for a few years and then pretty quickly decided that I really wanted to be in art school full time and felt like I really needed to um kind of immerse, I guess, and um, uh, applied to a bunch of different schools and really kind of fell in love with San Francisco and um, ended up going to San Francisco Art Institute to finish my undergrad um, and then stayed in uh, San Francisco for uh, 15 years. So, um, yeah. yeah. And now you're, now it's closing, right? San Francisco Art Institute. For like, yeah, all, just, like all the alumni are like, it's insane. Yeah, it's pretty devastating. I mean, they just graduated their last class. Um, it was such a special place. And the history of that space is like so immense. It's just such a, it's such a long sort of standing history of um, art making in the Bay. And um you know, I think for myself, it was really special to, to get to kind of come into an, a relationship with making art kind of seriously and um, intensely. And, uh, you know, I worked with John DeFazio at um, SFAI and also Ian McDonald, who Oh, yeah. To me, have such dramatic, dramatically different practices, but also I think really shaped my practice and sort of love of clay in really different ways. So it was really special and very, very formative uh, to be there. So yeah, we, uh, I, me, yeah. Gus, and I talked to Ian. Mickey, if I remember, you had mentioned a, a story about Ian when you were like a young student that he really kind of set you off on a path. Can, oh, can, yeah, I want to hear you it. you feel comfortable telling that? I don't remember the detail. Sure. Yeah. So um, in the midst of uh, COVID virtual, um, uh, virtual 
um, like artist talks and stuff, Ian invited me to come do like a Zoom artist talk for um, his class at Cranbrook. And um, I was giving this talk about sort of like pretty anchored in like sort of Myolica history and like um, uh, my interest in sort of functional objects as like a concept, not like a kind of practice. And um, while I was giving this talk and sort of talking about this idea of function as an idea, not like a kind of practicality, Ian like interjected and was like, weren't you in my, you know, like functional, non-functional class? And I was like, oh my God, like what? I was in that class. And that's like when I, that class was when I started doing like myolica work and really kind of like initiated this interest. And I had like in real time in front of all of his students, this like revelation that <laughs> that that was the moment that sort of like projected my practice forward. And I mean, I'm like still making that work and I'm still kind of like gnawing on these ideas of like what it means to bring sort of objects into the world and how to play with kind of the, the language of functionality. And, um, and these are all things that I studied with him in class at SFAI. Um, that's pretty so sweet. Yeah, it's really it was great. a really wild experience. <laughs> and I mean, again, this is this thing, Tom, like with your, with like, um, not having a meltdown with your class, but like <laughs> letting your class sort of yeah. see the, the, the reality of like, yeah. um, being a person making things in the world. Like I, I actually get so much out of talks like artist talks and I do like a like a substantial amount of prep for them but I also feel like I like part of what's so generative about an artist talk is that for me and my temperament I'll just be like talking out an idea and then something will click and I'll mm -hmm. be like oh my god like I like I've got it or like I just made this connection mm -hmm. and I just kind of will let who like the folks there like sort of <laughs> see that and not try to hide the fact that I'm yeah. um working things out in real time yeah that's yeah. really funny I have this idea like of you in front of the in front of the students like cry like crying <laughs> like oh my god give me a second I need to this is like a really yeah. big deal I mean it's like therapy I mean it yeah. is like a little oh, bit yeah. right it's awesome yeah I mean, I think of like, uh, like the sort of talking things out, like processing yeah. is like, uh, such a big part of my practice. It's yeah. like, I have relationships with colleagues and collaborators where like the bulk of what we do is just like talk ideas out to each other. And it's the mm -hmm. same thing essentially. Yeah. Um, but I think what's complicated is when like, uh, in audience and particularly when it's like students, when they sort of see that and they're like, oh, you're so articulate or like you have such an understanding of what your work is doing. And I have to sort of stop them and be like, okay, like one, <laughs> like, no, like I really don't know what this work is doing. 
but what I'm doing is kind of narrativizing it. Like I'm kind of talking through these ideas and the only reason it sort of sounds good is because I've had the meltdown, walked away from the meltdown and then like process yeah. the meltdown. Like, yeah. um, yeah. so, so it just kind of like sounds good, but I'm, this is just kind of part of my process is the processing. Well, well, now you're going to be like, who needs an artist talk? I have some things to work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like totally. anyone, anyone, anyone. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's, it's also your your um um kind of back to the story with with ian and then I'll, you know also when you were you were talking to my students you know not to get too kind of schmaltzy about teaching and and you know and i consider artist talk an aspect of, of teaching it's like you never know who's listening um and especially when you're teaching you never know you know in, in the classroom how students are processing what you're saying or even processing an assignment or a project you know just kind of give them space to find it um, and just for you, I don't know, whatever that time, five, 10 years later, after Ian gave you that assignment, it kind of circles back, you know, and now you're the one who's kind of inspiring the next yeah. generation. And it's really, um, A, as a teacher, like, you know, be honest and be aware of what you're saying, right? Because somebody is listening and it, it'll come back and, and oftentimes in the, in the most surprising and, and beautiful ways. Yeah. I um, was just listening to a talk that John DeFazio gave um, and was hearing him talk about how like his goal in teaching is to help students figure out what they're obsessed with and then to just mm -hmm. kind of like follow that obsession. Yep. And I was just like, oh yeah, like that is awesome yeah. and I, yeah. I I love that about teaching yeah. and that's a a useful way to kind of frame it like yep. like what are you drawing from what are you obsessed with and then how do you pull from that thing and bring yeah. it into the studio and kind of let it um direct your practice yeah yeah Cami I mean when Cami and I were in, in graduate school at Cranbrook the design department, Scott and Lori Makala's, at least when I was there, the tagline was, what is your obsession? Oh, yeah. um, which was, you know, especially coming from design perspective is, was really interesting because usually design is kind of servicing other people's ideas or other people's interests. But as graduate students, they wanted them to plumb the depths of their own obsession to really understand how to work through an idea, right? Um, um, I, lo I love that DeFazio kind of did, did the same thing. And, and I think about that too when, when teaching as well. It's like, what are you into? Just go do it and convince me that it's interesting. Hmm. Cammie, did that, did that sort of philosophy resonate for you in grad school as well? I think that, uh, I, I don't think it was so obvious with that that's with specifically with the Macalas, but I think I was doing that without knowing that I was doing that. Yeah, I don't really, it's really weird to think about in such far retrospect, right? Like it was so long ago and I was like, God, like what was I thinking then? And then part of me so much later is like, when I look at my work compared to now and then, like I haven't changed at all and I'm still processing the same things. So I'm like still thinking about the same things just in a different way, you know, which is like mm -hmm. a little bit like switching from like kind of abstracted sculpture into figurative sculpture. While, you know, you know, while it's two separate things, it's really 
the same person talking about the same kind of ideas and stuff, you know, I totally get that. Yeah. But I wasn't a, like, I wasn't so aware of like obsession, but now that you're talking about, it, I'm like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> He's brilliant. Like, duh. <laughs> like every teacher is going to be like, oh, I'm just writing that down, making a note. Yeah. It's going to be in all the classrooms. It's going to be like the buzzword from the ceramics podcast. Yeah. But great. I mean, yeah, as long as yeah, I just have to be clear that that's like coming from John DeFazio. Of course, yeah, <laughs> of course, uh, of course. I totally will tell people that's his. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know his name. What I can't remember. So uh, you know, you have this show uh, coming up in in uh, Lyon. Um, what what's what's next beyond yeah. that? Um. Well, I've got um. I've got some work at the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco that's up right now um, until January. Um, I also have some work in a group show at the Museum of Sex in New York. Um, cool. Yeah, and that's up until uh, October 11th. Um, and then I'm finishing up some work right now that's going to go into... Um, a show at Del Vaz Projects in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. um, and that opens at the end of September. Um, and I'm really excited about that show. It's like, um, the show is called Nightmare Bathroom and it's mm -hmm. um, pushing off of um, Woman House. I guess it's the 50th anniversary of Woman House this mm -hmm. year. Um, Wait, and so really? What's Woman, what's Woman House? Yeah, so Woman House, I... I guess I would have to look up the the date, but it was a um, an installation in the seventies by a handful of um, like feminist artists in LA, and specifically, I think centered around UCLA. It was like a class at UCLA, and they okay. um, let students make installations in different sort of rooms of the house um and it was this really kind of like large scale installation and then was sort of open to the public um and the bathroom installation was um a sculpture of like a woman laying in the bathtub made out of sand and there was a sign that said like do not touch and people kept touching and the body kept sort of eroding and the artist kept sort of trying to like maintain the body that kept sort of uh like deteriorating in this bathtub um and the installation was called nightmare bathroom um <laughs> and so cool. yeah and so this uh this small group show at Delva's projects is um i think engaging woman house or more sort of like pushing off of woman house sort of acknowledging this 50th anniversary and um, a lot of kind of fascinating kind of bathroom or bathroom adjacent kind of sculptures. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about that show. That's in September? Yeah, um, end of September is when that opens. Great. Cool. And, and when, when does the show in, in France open? Um, September 14th, oh. and it goes through the end of the year. Um, okay. And um, 
Yeah, and, and it's it's a Biennale, so it's like all of these different sites. There's like many different sites around the city. Um, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and going to be out there for the opening, so. Uh, are, you gonna, are you doing any teaching in the fall? Yeah, I'll be teaching at um, Cal State Long Beach again. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah, looking forward to it, especially with this residency behind me. Um, it'll be interesting to kind of um, engage differently with students uh, this semester. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Nikki, this was so fun. Thank you so much. Wow. Yeah, thank you. It's a way, it was like be way beyond my expectations. Thank you so much. Mm, so yeah. good. Thanks for agreeing yeah. to do it, Nikki. It was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, and if you ever you are in New York, come say hi. Or I will for whatever. sure. I, yeah, I, I just heard that um, they're remounting the um, Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Roof um, on Broadway. Wow. Um, did you hear about this the first I, time? It. I actually did, but go on, say please. Yeah. Well, they just they essentially like rewrote Fiddler in Yiddish and did like the whole musical in Yiddish. Um, and uh, I really wanted to go see it the first time it was on Broadway and missed it. And now I just heard that they're re they're like rebooting it and it'll be there like in November. So I think I'm going to try to make an excuse to come back to the East Coast. My my family lives in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. So um, I think I'm going to try to make that happen. So anyway, I'll keep you in the loop. I would love to see you. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> Great. I love it. Yeah. So yeah. nice to meet you. Thank you yeah. so Great much. Great to meet you. Nice um, you thanks Nikki. for having me. Bye. You too. Thanks, Bye. Nikki. Bye, Tom. Bye, Bye Nikki. Bye. And so we're back, Tom. That was an amazing talk with Nikki Green, right? I'm sorry. I just like asked so many questions mm -hmm. because I felt like you already knew everything and then I mm -hmm. wanted to like catch up. Yeah, it's better that way. <laughs> um, okay. Well, thanks so much for guest hosting again. It was a great. Yeah. Total great pleasure. Answer. It's always great talking to you about art lessons. I always love your insight mm -hmm. into the art world, <laughs> looking at art, making art. It's always like, oh, right. And I feel like, you know, if you ever need any philosophical questions or anything answered about, <laughs> like, about moving things, uh, Clay, you should definitely consult Thomas Mueller. No. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I'm always happy to chit chat. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, thanks everyone for listening and talk to you ever, talk to you later. Oh, I'll, Thanks, Tom, Thanks. Tom, I'll see you on Words with Friends. Who am I kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. <Bye. laughs>